Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 179 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Tuesday night, it's September 15th, it's 2020. I'm Bobby Chesney and I'm tired. You be you stole my line. Oh, was that I'm was going to say, Bobby, I'm exhausted. Hey, everybody, um, we're tired. I'm also going to say, beware the eyes of September. <laughs> you know, I'm tired in part because of 2020, but I'm also just really tired because now we're a few weeks into the fall semester. But you know, you you're on sabbatical. You're you're resting. You you should be you should be happy as a clam, Steve. Yeah, I've just I've just been spending my days by the pool. Um, you know, <laughs> sipping. Sipping pina coladas and reading science fiction. If you, um, although a, if you had a pool in that backyard, I'd be over there teaching my remote cybersecurity law class on Zoom from poolside. Um, there is, um, there actually is a new a new Timothy Zahn book that I'm actually thinking of reading, uh, of getting into. Uh, uh, part of the Thrawn, the Thrawn series in the Star Wars galaxy. Interesting. Okay. Do we know anything about the plot? Um, yeah, I don't want to get, I mean, so do you know the Thrawn trilogy, the heir to the empire trilogy? I, I know of it. I've not read it. Oh, so this is what they really should have done for episode seven, eight, nine. This was the, this was the right way to have done episode seven, eight, nine, but no so one listened you, to that. Are you recommending? Should I, should I add this to my list? I think the heir to the, I mean, if you like star Wars stuff, um, I think I really enjoyed the heir to the empire trilogy. Um, this is actually now a, a, a prequel to that trilogy. And okay. so cool. I'm just trying to figure out just how much. He's already done a couple of books about the main character in those in those books, uh, Grand Admiral Thrawn. And so I'm just trying to figure out if I'm if I'm up for yet another one or if I'd rather go in a different direction. All right. I think I will follow you into that herd. And by the way, this is making me laugh because a couple of people gave us um, some flack about the chit chat at the Star Wars show. But I got to say, um, we it's not that we don't care. It's just that when we started this project as something that, hey, we hang out and talk like this anyways, let's record it. Maybe somebody will enjoy it. We agreed. We're not going to change what we do. We won't make effort on production value beyond some de minimis stuff. And uh, we're not going to stop the chit chat. Sorry. There was an early moment in our relationship where Karen and I were on a long drive. I want to say from like New York to DC. And I had just finished telling her this really long story. And she and I look over and realize that like, she didn't process any of it. And I said, were you really not listening to anything I just said? And she said, I was listening. I just don't care. Oh. <laughs> um, and, and, and that's, you know, it's like, yes, I hear, I, I hear the folks who want us to dive right into to, to top, to, to, to topical material, and we will shortly. But folks also have to understand, Bobby, like you and I are used to seeing each other, you know, three, four days a week. I mean, our offices are four days down from each other. Four doors down from each other. Right. Four days would be right. Um, and and this is what passes for yeah, like my interaction these days. So, say, you know, I, I'm completely with you. So, you know, we we do try more so than we did early on to try to have the chit chat in in cuttable blocks, especially <laughs> since, especially since our our you know lawfare podcast occasionally will run our episodes. And the whole idea is to chop this part. stuff. I mean, so there comes a moment where we're like, all right, let's talk about our first topic. And that usually is where the lawfare version begins. And then it ends right before the frivolity often. So, so we actually we have Star Wars theme frivolity. I was say, we have start we, we do have so I was gonna say the the Thrawn, the Thrawn random tangent actually is somewhat relevant insofar as our, our frivolity is Star Wars related. Um I, I just want to note one thing just because um um you should be aware. I, I have on in the background the the Miami Boston game, um, game, game one of the Eastern Conference Finals, and somehow the Heat are about to do it again. We're in overtime, 
Um, and it's just, I, this, this is crazy. Anyway, all right. Um, so let's tell the good folks what we're doing. We're not going to do the whole run of show because basically tonight's show is a little bit of a smorgasbord. We actually have a whole bunch of topics that we're probably not going to cover in nearly quite the depth that we did the Al Gila decision <laughs> in our last oh episode. Well, by the way, like, can I say real quick how much I appreciate all of y'all who encouraged us and applauded us for the uh, – you know, we had a pretty pretty thick argument Robust. and a pretty heated argument last time, although that, I think of, you know we were, of course, trying to be respectful, but it was definitely more argument than usual. We love that too. We really do. Um, thanks for the kind words. I especially like – what was the, the phrase like – Law nerd fight. We will try to have more law nerd fight according to fair and proper rules. Um, well, and I'll just say, and 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 you know, I I will I will be unabashed about saying that one one of the many things that I hope, one of the many reasons why I'm hoping for a particular outcome in November, so that the law nerd fights again become the you know the the relevant conversation in our field. Absolutely. Let's let's get back to the the rule of law not being an issue. And, so, <laughs> or a debate. and then we can talk about the the hard choices in national security law. What a crazy concept. All right. But before we get to hard choices, um, so you wanted to start uh, dive us in uh, this week with, uh, uh, was it Charlie Charlie Savage and was it Mark Mazzetti's story? And that was Eric Schmidt. So Eric oh, Schmidt, Schmidt and Charlie had a great, you know, as they often do. Those New York Times guys. I just, <laughs> I can't keep them straight. And I got to say, you know, and, and Mark, of course, is part of this as well, Mark Mazzetti. But the, the Times has had such great coverage over the years of the the details that really matter but aren't easily digested into news articles about the ins and outs of the authority that the United States has asserted since 9-11 to use lethal force for counterterrorism purposes under color of the AUMF. And even though it sounds like the past, you know, last two weeks ago, our last episode, we were back in the uh, the 9-11 swing of things by talking about Guantanamo, the 9-11 19th anniversary just passed. And now we've got a, a good, what you might describe as a good old fashioned um, scope of AUMF and rules of the, 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 drone the, AUMF anniversary. the AUMF anniversary is, is, is um, what Friday. Yeah. Uh, so you, you go the if passage in Congress, the 14th signed into law, the 18th. It, yes, sir. Yeah. So we're getting there. It's um, like we do this for a living. So there's a story by Charlie and Eric uh, describing an interesting but nuanced development relating to the use of lethal force and in the form, the, the story frames it as drone strikes, but of course there's no reason it has to be drone strikes. It could be a manned aircraft. It might be something involving uh, boots on the ground in theory. Probably airstrikes is the, the most accurate way to capture what, what's being contemplated here, but using lethal force against Al-Shabaab targets in Kenya. So the, the sort of the, the overall pitch of the story is, hey, the, the drone war is expanding into Kenya or there's an effort afoot to do that. Hey, people remember when we used to care about where we were using force, maybe people should pay attention to this. So I want to unpack it a bit and, and take the occasion to remind everybody about how this sort of stuff works. Um, first and maybe most importantly is to remind everyone that there's nothing novel about Al-Shabaab, uh, the Somalia-based uh, Al-Qaeda-related organization, though I say that very advisedly because Al-Shabaab has its own history and its ties to Al-Qaeda are extremely complex over time and, and much different early on than they are these days. Um, Al-Shabaab's long been deemed within the scope of the AUMF. It was late in the Obama administration when Shabaab became 
treated as a fully fledged associated force collectively, therefore within the scope of the AUMF. That was after years of never quite taking that full organizational step. And instead, there were many uses of force against Al-Shabaab targets, but it was always predicated on an individualized justification, either a, a, a defense against, uh, you know, a self-defense justification or a that person individually is associated with Al-Qaeda. Now, there's also nothing new, of course, about going back to the Bush administration, about the current administration's position that when the AUMF applies, it's not geographically limited that the AMF applies wherever Al-Qaeda and its associated forces may be found. But also throughout this whole time, that's, that's not been the end geographically of the story of whether there's limits. It's just that the limitations are driven by other considerations besides an interpretation of the AOMF, which after all says nothing about geography. Um, the central legal constraint, of course, is the UN Charter. You, you cannot, consistent with the UN Charter, simply go using force wherever you wish. Um, the U.S. government's position has long been either that you have to have host state consent for these al-Qaeda-related strikes, which in many contexts, including this one, it appears uh, that's the pathway. Or there are contexts famously, infamously, depending on your point of view, where there's not host state consent, but there's a claim instead that the host state's either unwilling or unable, and therefore, et cetera, et cetera. That, that's not our current situation with Kenya. Uh, the second thing to bear in mind about the geography of the AUMF and where force is used, uh, the Obama administration introduced a really interesting and I think thoughtful policy system in which the authorities that could be acted upon to use lethal force under the AMF were much more constrained in locations that were not designated to be active zone, zones of active hostilities. Uh, which in this context is being used not as a legal characterization, but as a policy characterization. And, and when you're in those zones where if you're not in the zones like, say, Afghanistan that had that, that status, the idea was that the, the ability to use force, whatever legally might be true under domestic international law, was, was very different in terms of the authority you had to get, the scenarios where you could even be at, as the relevant military command be asking for permission to attack, et cetera. It was, it was meant to be more tightly constrained. And the point being, many of those rules, though modified over time, uh, those rules or some version of that is still in place. And the proposal on the table right now, the New York Times is reporting, is to shift Kenya's geographic status in that framework in a way that feels to me like an in-between sort of approach. So let me unpack that a bit. Uh, back in January, uh, Al-Shabaab personnel entered Kenya. They attacked a military base at a place called Manda Bay. That's where several hundred Americans are stationed, a couple hundred service members and about a hundred contractors. And one service member, two contractors were killed there. Um, following this air, this episode, according to the reporting, uh, AFRICOM, uh, United States Africa Command, has been pushing to modify the Kenya rules to make it clear when and where the United States military can use military force if the Kenyan government consents. That's a critical point in the story. No one's talking about an action that Kenyan authorities don't approve. In fact, the proposal apparently also would call for the uh, the ambassador, the chief of mission, to also have to consent. So this isn't a opening up the aperture to full-scale embrace of the claimed law of war authorities. It's It's something more in between. And, and then the story details that it's not just about situations of immediate 
self-defense of U.S. personnel or collective self-defense of Kenyan coalition partners. It's The idea is to open the aperture so that if you have intelligence suggesting that an al-Shabaab group is in Kenya and is preparing for an attack, you could engage in the use of force in that setting. And so that's not an embrace of just status-based targeting where you can just target al-Shabaab members if you find some. So the takeaway to me, it's it's kind of to me actually revelatory and interesting that they're not pushing for something broader than that. They're pushing for something that frankly, in, in the context of how these things have gone over time, strikes me as actually quite limited, respectful of Kenyan sovereignty, respectful of the State Department's role as chief of mission with the ambassador, uh, and, and not seeking a more open-ended set of authorities uh, beyond a scenario of preemption in the case of a looming potential attack that frankly, in, in some contexts, we've seen the executive branch claim that's all just part of self-defense anyways. So the story is important. It's interesting. But to me, the takeaway is what we don't actually see is a more aggressive posture that you might actually expect. So that that's my take. And, and there's my two cents on it. Um. Cool. I, 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 unlike last week, I don't. I, this is something I don't think there's a lot of daylight between us on. But it does lead me to sort of what I think is a natural segue to another topic, which is um, the Woodward, the Woodward Assad piece of this. Oh my God! Do you so? Do you have an advanced copy by chance? I do not. I have not yet. I, I have wait. not yet read Rage. Apparently, we're going to hear it all through TV interviews because Woodward's out there. Um, the book had asserted that President Trump had wanted to kill Bashar Assad um, during the time period and in response to the same sort of provocations involving, uh, Steve, was it the chemical weapons usage or was it a claim about attacks on civilians or a combination of the two? Do you recall? I think it's not, it's not, I, I, from the, from the story I read, it's, it's like a muddled combination of those two things. Right. So Woodward reports that the the president said, why don't we, let's kill this guy. Let's let's take them out. Take take him out. And and And, 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 and that quote, we had the opportunity to do so. And so he he denied when it, this started getting reported. Trump said that's not true. This is all this is all fake, et cetera, et cetera. But interviewed on Fox News uh, more recently, I, I think today wasn't it? Uh, he said he basically told the whole story. So, so and, that, and that it was and that it was Mattis who stopped him, right? Who he then he then disparaged and disparaged and disparaged, and it's you know typical stuff. But it, it was kind of a a, a shockingly quick turnaround, although nothing's really shocking, right? Where's the accountability for flipping? But, from, but this is all a lie to. Oh no, it's actually completely true. There, but insofar as this accountability for that, insofar well, I mean zero accountability for anything. Um, but insofar as this is a national security law podcast, I mean, can we just sort of yeah, briefly do the whole? About why what, this is more what, than what, just a story? What, what legal authority would Trump have had to c- conduct a unilateral assassination of a of a foreign leader? Do you want to start domestic or should we start international? Well, they both have the same answer, right? Yeah, well, so it so it wouldn't be legal. Um, <laughs> that is the answer. Just move on. We got a lot of other topics. Done. Um, Moving on. Okay, now, now, but play it out a little further. So the, the administration did authorize it, it uh, some degree of the use of force against what was it a, a Syrian airbase, right? A Syrian airbase, the, the one that was responsible for launching right the the, the attack that actually led to uh, directly effect directly attacked the U.S. forces supporting SDF, right? So if that attack was legal, which I recognize is a contested point, but if that attack's legal, 
why not include within the scope of the attack the actual commander in chief of I assume it's a plausible claim to say that Assad is as much commander in chief and therefore a uh, a combatant ultimately as anyone else that he's not a civilian despite being head of state um in in the exact same way by the way that the president of the United States for this purpose is not a well, civilian in the in right. the law of war since he's a he is a combatant in the sense that he is the commander in chief of our military forces um so maybe there is actually some complexity there but nonetheless it doesn't sound right to say that as a as a matter of the law of war he could be targeted because the united states supposedly isn't in an armed conflict with with syria, syria. <laughs> there's also that pesky and, and insofar as we're not in an armed conflict with syria there's also that pesky little thing called the assassination ban in executive order 12333 so there's an interesting question. Executive Order 12333 and the assassination ban, quick digression, enacted originally by President Ford, carried forward by Carter and then Reagan and every president since. And so it's now part of what we just refer to as Executive Order 12333. It says that basically no one acting on behalf of the U.S. government can commit what is simply described as assassination without definition. And there's been a, a ton of wrestling over time with what exactly does that ban mean? The executive branch position on that basically boils down to a situation in which lethal force is being used not in the context of armed conflict or within the bounds of what the law of armed conflict authorizes, nor if it's not a situation of armed conflict, nor nonetheless in the context of otherwise constitutional self-defense of the nation. Um, so think like Operation El Dorado Canyon, maybe something like that. The, uh, the Reagan administration's use of force in uh, Libya, which, to be fair, let me let me rush to add. I was going to say. They denied that they were trying to kill Gaddafi. Um, setting that aside, 12333 in the assassination ban clearly binds everyone else in the executive branch. If the president decides to stipulate it's an assassination, Steve, is the president bound or is there like some notion of formality that the president – is somehow violating his own executive order or the the, pres- the past president's executive order if he doesn't formally change it? I mean, it doesn't really bind the president, does it? I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, the closest the Supreme Court has ever come to addressing this question was in the Watergate tapes case, um, right, where Nixon had made the argument that, like, insofar as the special counsel regulation um, made the special counsel adverse to the president, that wasn't enough to create a concrete case or controversy because – you know, he was the president could override any time. Supreme Court says, but you haven't overridden it yet. Um, and so maybe the formality actually does matter here. Now, Trump could sign a piece of paper that says, you know, step one, I rescind 12333 for this moment. Yeah. Step two, I authorize this strike. Step three, I reinstitute 12333. Yeah. Or he could even not write it down. He can say, notwithstanding any other executive orders that I or my predecessors may have issued, uh, I am now as the current wielder of that same power. And obviously, he can't be bound by the prior president's. But, so then that's that's thing of but then there's a whole pesky thing with internet. But then there's a whole pesky international law problem. Yeah, exactly. So there's yeah. So I, and I think so. To me, this is where I wanted to go. To me, like the the real gravamen of the problem, because there is this muddiness introduced by the fact that the United States did in fact use force against other Syrians yes. uh, it, for roughly the same reason. Um, I think it's more of a proportionality problem. I think there's a serious proportionality here if you talk about killing the head of state in that setting. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll just say that I'll, I'll just say that that necessity, presupposes necessity as well. 
that also presupposes that the use of force against the lower level Syrian troops was perfectly legal. And as I recall, there was some debate on that. Front. Right. And there's, there's debate about that as well. So, um, all right. Good times. Um, speaking of Trump and national security nonsense, I do want to note before we turn to, to non-Trumpy Trumpiness, um, two other brief developments, um, neither of which I think will require extended discussion. The first is um, news broke today that the du- Justice Department has launched a criminal investigation of John Bolton. <laughs> oh man! Oh, so many thoughts. And, and 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 I'll just say, I mean, listen. If there's actually national security information in the book, then yes, publishing the book was a violation of the Espionage Act. But I mean, this is the exact kind of thing that DOJ Bobby has never wanted to litigate because the kinds of first of all, you know, from this White House, the notion that like stuff that Trump talks about on Fox and Friends is still, you know, the basis for a viable Espionage Act prosecution may not sit very well. But second, there's also the First Amendment concerns lurking in the background here. So, so yeah. to me, what if you had told me that the administration has an ongoing investigation into John Bolton's breach of his contractual obligations for pre-publication review, which in fact is something I assumed was in fact the case because there, there was so much noise about this. And I... Right. In fact, I I forget the how this went down. Do you recall? Is there actually litigation to uh, to uh, garnish the the income? Yeah, yeah. Remember, remember Judge Lambert issued right. that preliminary yeah. ruling. Yeah. So so all that sounds like exactly what you expect's going on. But to go further and to prosecute uh, the former national security advisor or to explore the possibility of prosecuting him uh, for this, it's just so transparent. Apparently <laughs> retaliatory. Yeah, yeah. So, and again, there's a lot of that going around. Well, I mean, there's there, right. I mean, I think the we have become to some degree inured to the politicization of what used to be not unpolitical, but at least largely apoliticized um, things in the Justice Department. And I just, I mean, there is a hard conversation to be had about how we ever go back to believing. That DOJ, you know, is can generally be trusted to be acting not for partisan political reasons. I, I, I don't, know. I don't think it's actually that hard because I think when Edward Levy became the Attorney General in the seventies, yeah. after frankly, it, 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 I think an analogously difficult time. Um, I think you put the right people in place, the structural bones, the traditions, the career people, it can snap back into place just fine, not easily. But it will work. It yeah, will I'm not. Heal. I'm not sure. But I, there are lots of reasons why I don't think this is 1975. But hopefully, this is a conversation we get to have in December or January. Well, let me let me add this too, though. So it's worth recognizing the possibility. And, and I'm not familiar with the details of what came out today, so this may not be consistent with what the, what's already been said. But there are settings in which I can imagine that what's going on is there's top down pressure on National Security Division. Um, or perhaps on on one of the U.S. Attorney's Office. I don't know if we actually know this, do we? Is this coming out of National Security Division as opposed I, to- I don't, I don't think the source is clear. U.S. Attorney's Office, D.C. or Eastern District of Virginia. In any event, depending on how this is going down, it could be that, yes, the relevant uh, folks in a position to more of a line position said, All right, okay, so we're going to open this investigation because there's a lot of talk about the need for it. That's not the same thing as saying that there's going to be an attempt to have a grand jury issue an indictment. That's a very that's right. No, no, that's right. I mean, it, this could be this could be very. Li- I mean, right. This could end up like not going anywhere. It's saying like, all right, okay, great. Yep. The, the yeah. White House is pressing for this, which is totally inappropriate. But the White House is 
it's really for the reasons we think totally inappropriate, but the way you get past this and the way you actually turn off that heat is to release it out by letting it be known that yes, we're, we're now looking at, we're looking into this very seriously. Okay. Everybody back to work. Right. I hope that's what's happening. Um, all right. Um, one, two other things while we're still in Trump. Well, I guess, so I, I want to save TikTok for last because I, I know you want to say a fair amount about that. Yeah, we can so, finish so, that. That'll be fine in on the way to frivolity. Um, so, uh, a couple of other sort of Trumpy things. Um, the first is, um, a, a federal district judge in Maryland on Friday, um, in the process of issuing a preliminary injunction against one of DHS's new asylum rules did in fact conclude that it is likely that the plaintiffs are going to succeed on the merits on their claim that Chad Wolf was unlawfully appointed oh, as acting secretary of Homeland security. Oh, so boy. that's, that's going well. Um, there's also DOJ's uh, notice that they filed um, or a motion that they filed today in the, or yesterday in the first circuit. Um, they asked the first circuit to stay the mandate in the Jokar Sarnayev case, not because they're going to seek rehearing on bonk, but Bobby, because they are, go in the petition for certain the Supreme Court, which I think is an interesting, if not shocking, development. Now, you and I had disagreed on that yeah. previously. When we reviewed yeah. that ruling, I, I may be recalling this wrong, but I'm pretty sure you had said at the time you thought they, they should walk away from this. Uh, yes. And I had predicted that they would not do so. And, and yes. in fact, they should challenge this. So yes. that's, that's so, an area where we could have We've already had it, so we won't repeat you, it now. But you were, you were, you were, your prediction was correct. I still think normatively <laughs> they really like. I, I, I mean, I, I just think this is. I, you know, I don't know. I, I'd rather you I'm agree not, with me on the merits and my prediction be wrong. But I guess I'll have to settle for just getting the prediction. Part. I mean, this, this case. I mean, if the court, uh, I, if I'm the court, I don't want to touch this case with a ten foot pole. But that's a that's another matter. That's just um, well, that's the other thing. It's like it's it, in a sense, it's kind of cheap to try for the appeal, uh, try for the cert petition, and they yeah. may well not get it. In fact, it's right. easy to imagine they won't. Two more Trumpy things, and then we'll get to TikTok. Um, so the first is um, there's this all this drama um, last week because uh, the Justice Department. Um, filed a notice that it was trying to take over the uh, defamation case being brought by E. Jean Carroll against President Trump. Miss um, Carroll, of course, has accused the president of rape, um, and the defamation case is arising out of um, cl- uh, statements the president made in basically sort of trying to deflect and rebuff the rape allegations. Um, this case, Bobby, had been pending since last fall in state court in New York, and DOJ showed up uh, last Monday, which I believe was, or last Tuesday, which I believe was the day before discovery or the day discovery was closing, um, and filed what's called a Westfall Act certification, um, which of course, once again, um, an obscure statute that I unfortunately know some stuff about was thrust into the limelight by, by Trump. Um, so, you know, a lot of folks reacted in horror and, and umbrage that DOJ would expend, you know, federal taxpayer resources effectively to defend Trump from a defamation claim. Um, and I actually, I understand the umbrage, but the law actually is, I think, unfortunately, somewhat favorable to Trump here, right? That the Westfall Act, uh, for better or for worse, allows the federal government to take over any tort claim against a federal officer where the tort arises out of the scope of the officer's employment. Um, and that's true, Bobby. And, and the whole idea is if it's a scope of employment tort, it's no longer a tort claim against the officer. It becomes a tort claim against the government. 
So right? unpack for me, because it wasn't immediately obvious when I first heard about this. So he he denied this allegation. I take it that the, the reason why it's being characterized not as a personal action of Donald J. Trump, but rather as a presidential course or scope of employment action was that the question was put to him, the one that's allegedly defamatory, the question that precipitated his allegedly defamatory response was at a White House press conference. And it was so, he was so speaking one, in the context right. of acting as president. So one of the questions was, I mean, my understanding, Bobby, and I, 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 it's been a while since I read the complaint, is that there are actually a couple of different statements, but that they were all to reporters at different times. And the, the DOJ's claim is basically that when the president speaks to reporters, he's always the president. Um, yeah, see, that seems that seems too much to me. So I agree with you that it's too much. Here's the problem. There's terrible case law on this. Um, so there's a D.C. Circuit case called Ballinger that was about a congressman def- defaming his, I believe, wife, um, you know, on the precipice of separation proceedings um, to a reporter in his office. Right. And it had nothing to do with his job as a member of Congress. It just happened to be in his office. And the D.C. Circuit holds that that was within the scope of his employment as a congressman because D.C. law interprets scope of employment quite capaciously. I am not wait, wait, defending like this. Feels like a detour to me. Listen, I am not defending this nonsense. Well, I, know. I am just I saying I'm just saying that of all the preposterous things that the Trump Justice Department has done and that have blurred the line between you know defending the United States and defending Trump, here I think there's terrible case law that actually makes this position – if not correct, then at least plausible. No, that's right. And here's something else that kind of threw me when I first started hearing this story. At first, I thought from the way it was being reported that what was going on was the Justice Department was effectively saying, hey, let us represent the president on the taxpayer's dime instead of private counsel. But that's not really the, the right way to think about this. It's about substituting the person, Donald J. Trump, as defendant, right? And replacing well, plus, him with the United yes. States of America as defendant. But it's more than that, because in this context specifically, the effect of that substitution, if it's valid, is not that the United States would take over the lawsuit, Bobby, it's that the lawsuit would be dismissed because um, Congress has not authorized defamation claims against the federal government. And so a lot of folks that, reacted well, to that, that. Hold on. That's crazy. So the effect of this, yeah. if you combine the two different points you've now made, yeah. is to mean that a president any time talking to a reporter while in office can defame the hell out of somebody at will with no accountability. That's, I mean, that's where the case law is. And, and indeed this is a gap. I mean, this is a gap in, this is, listen, I, I just lost a Supreme court case where part of what I was doing was trying to explain how the Westfall act messes everything up. The, the biggest problem with the Westfall act as in Hernandez, the, you know, the cross border shooting case is that it has the effect Bobby of taking away state tort claims and in many, if not most cases, replacing them with nothing, if right? as opposed to, to – sorry, go ahead. No, as, as opposed to – like it would be one thing if it just said, hey, here's your little state tort suit. We're turning it into a federal tort suit. And instead of Trump as defendant, the United States is the defendant. Right. If that were all it did, that would be fine. Right. Right. The problem is that the Federal Tort Claims Act is a heck of a lot narrower than most all state tort regimes, and the Supreme Court has expressly held that that narrowness is not a is a feature, not a bug. Right? That that the Westfall Act has the effect of extinguishing those lawsuits in cases in which the claim is available under state tort law, but is not available under the FTCA. What would happen if instead the plaintiffs had 
plaintiffs wait until the person's out of office. Does that change it or is it retroactive? It's still scope of employment. I mean, the question is not what, who he is when you sue him. The question is who he is when he commits the tort. And, and this is why this was not available in Clinton versus Jones, right? Because in Clinton versus Jones, Paula Jones sued Bill Clinton while he was president, but almost all of her claims, one of them wasn't, but almost all of her claims and all the claims that were still in the case when it got to the Supreme Court were for things that happened before he was president. So there was no scope of employment argument. Yeah, I feel like I'm just missing something. I guess the answer is like, well, it depends on the scale of the federal tort count. Listen, no, the Westfall, listen, the Westfall Act sucks. And, and, and it's, it's, it's really sucky in context where it's actually not just taking away state tort claims, but it's taking away state constitutional tort claims. I mean, this is, this is exactly why, you know, in Hernandez, um, I think it was so frustrating that the Supreme Court didn't actually get into the Westlock. And if a, just a quick shameless self-promotion, um, I have a paper about Hernandez and how the Supreme Court's decision there is so thoroughly disingenuous um, that's out this week in the Cato Supreme Court review. So... You know, ah, in case you carrying self shining through. Well, let me let me give you a hypo. I've been, I've been accused a lot. I've been accused a lot on Twitter this week of being a closet libertarian. Which, by the way, we're about to get into. Well, I, I was going to say I don't see why that would be characterized as an accusation. Um, that's not a bad really? thing to be a libertarian, um, to be interested in liberties and to defend liberties. But we'll come to that later. Um, there's another. There's <laughs> another political philosophy that starts with libera that is more consistent with my beliefs. But there's you know, plenty, plenty of overlap, at least on speech issues, right? So speech, hypothetical, because yeah. I'm not sure I fully understand this, and and yeah. therefore maybe this is helpful to others too. Uh, although probably everyone else understands it fine, and I'm just being dense. What if the president is at a reception at the White House? Uh, I recognize this president doesn't drink apparently, but, but gets wasted, hops in the car because it's needs to get over to the Pentagon, decides I'm president, I'm driving myself, drives drunk, runs someone over, hurts somebody, kills somebody. Can is is that unactionable? Or so, is it yeah. because that's a physical that's a physical injury. So the FTCA creates the, the FTCA, right, is a waiver of the federal government's sovereign immunity. And that's why it is construed so specifically. And the FTCA does waive the federal government's sovereign immunity, Bobby, for negligence. Right. So if Trump, okay. yeah. if Trump's driving a car and he negligently hits your car, you can sue him. But the crazy part is the FTCA does not the, – the only intentional torts that the FTCA waives sovereign immunity for are intentional torts by law enforcement officers on the presumption, Bobby, when Congress wrote the statute in um, 46 and when it amended it in 74 for law enforcement officers, the assumption was there was no need to subject the U.S. to liability for intentional torts because you could sue the officer directly. Because if it was an intentional tort, it was almost surely not within the scope of their employment. But now we have scope of employment law. I mean, in the Guantanamo context, the D.C. Circuit has a case. I think it's I think it's Razul um, where the D.C. Circuit says that um, torture is scope of employment. Right. When torture can never be legal. So, you know, this is well, this is a- two different questions, right? Like were you asked to do something in the skip of your job? That's one question. Is what you've been asked to do legal is is this other question? I get that. I understand it. But then but but I think the problem is that like, you know, I, listen, I, I can defend the principle behind the Westfall Act. What the problem is twofold. One, I don't think Congress in 1988 meant to extinguish all of these claims. Um, but two, and in any event, um, the sort of the notion that scope of employment runs to just anything you do as an employee, I think, is radically inconsistent with how that's historically been understood. That's right. Frolic and detour, my friends. Frolic and detour. Exactly. All right. Um, speaking of libertarianism and 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 <laughs> my apparent closeted libertarianism-ness, 
Um, there was a, a widely noted, because especially when the president retweeted 26 straight news stories about it yesterday, um, district court decision by a federal district judge, a, 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 Trump appoint, a 41-year-old Trump-appointed federal district judge. I say 41 because I'm knocking on that door. Um, in hey, a case called- Trump might appoint you next if you keep up oh, your yeah. libertarian ways. That's me. Uh, County of Butler versus Wolf. Um, not Chad Wolf, not Chad this is Wolf, the yeah. governor of Pennsylvania Wolf. Um, and the decision, Bobby, um, in essence, uh, Judge William Stickman IV, great name, um, struck down three different sets of Pennsylvania state COVID orders. He struck down a, a stay home order. Um, he struck down a business closure order. Um, and there was one, I don't even remember what the third one was anymore. But anyway, um, and he struck down these orders, Bobby, at least in part, by relying on two things that I'm not really sure he was supposed to rely on. Um, one of them being Lochner, the Supreme Court's 1905 decision recognizing oh uh, liberty oh contract under the Constitution, um, and one being Justice Alito's dissenting opinion from a Supreme Court decision earlier this summer that refused to stay a lower court, uh, um, that refused to sort of put on hold a, a state COVID order. Is that how it works? Okay, so... I had not known about this until you mentioned it right as we're about to start. So I'm still trying to process this. Um, I take it that the actual constitutional provision that Pennsylvania. Oh, sorry. The, the I'm sorry. The third order was an in, was a was a gatherings limit, an aggregate gathering limit order. And he sorry. just flat struck this down. I, I gather that the nature of the claim was that the lines drawn to define who was subject to these orders or what the numbers were. Uh, were not adequately justified, that the that the governor failed to adequately provide a, an explanation for why this line, why that type of group, why this many people. Is that is that the gravamen of the of the argument? That was that was that was the rational basis part. There was also one of the um the gathering one he he applies he obje- he he subjected the gathering one to intermediate scrutiny insofar as it interfered with the right to association. Um Okay, right. and we should disaggregate that then and give some baselines for people who don't know this stuff. Well, except, I mean, there are a couple of, I mean, before we even get to the merits here, I mean, so so he cites, I, I got a lot of um, um, notes from folks because he makes a big deal out of citing an article that Lindsay Wiley and I published earlier this <laughs> wow. summer on why court should apply so-called ordinary judicial review in assessing COVID orders. Um, and he says, you know, that's, you know, that's what I'm doing. I'm just applying our, our, our ordinary principles to standard review. Um, so Lindsay and I note in the article that courts applying the ordinary modes of review might still apply them incorrectly. <laughs> so the ordinary mode of review, when someone claims that, I take it that the claim under a due process was a straightforward substantive due process liberty claim. Um, uh, and, and that the nature of the claim was that under, if it really was a Lochner citation, I mean, can you can you just unpack that for me? I'm still getting my mind around it. A Lochner so was that, so, was, so, was he claiming? Yeah. What what was he claiming? He literally says Lochner's never been overruled, which is technically, I mean, it's actually not even true. Like Lochner itself was overruled even during the Lochner era, right? Because the court actually does allow. Um, what maximum hour laws, right, to be what? upheld? Because Hotel v. Parish has been that's just, oh, that just that just overruled Moorhead. <laughs> Hotel v. Parish has been understood for I know. basically, you know, we're some some seventeen years short of a century as having having effectively overruled it. Caroline so, Products yes. 
Clearly, clearly, indisputable. This isn't even debatable. If somebody so, wrote me so a damn question and claimed what? it, this can't be. I'm having really a hard time with I see. It. We're, we're, we're going to Bobby fired up. Is good law? Uh, or at least that the principles animating it are. Um, so listen, Bobby, that is not the least, that, that is the least of the problems with this opinion. So, so let me just sort of highlight a couple of flaws in Judge Dickman's analysis. So flaw number one, two of these three orders have totally expired and there's no claim for damages. So hello, mootness. Um, and the third claim, I'm not even sure that there's the third issue isn't moot because the third order I think has been quote suspended unquote, but at least there, there's a plausible argument that they could unsuspend it unilaterally. Um, second problem um, Judge Butler, uh, Judge Butler, Judge Stickman rejects most of the or many of the plaintiffs' standing, and he focuses on the standing of the the business owners, right? Um, which is fine with regard to the business closure order, but why do the business owners have standing to challenge, you know, the other orders, right? Like that's that's not obvious at all. Um, and then third, and this is the big party standing argument. I mean, I. That's not what he's, I mean, that's not how he parses it. Like, I mean, so they have third party standing to challenge the aggregate gathering limit insofar as the limit on the gathering size affects their ability to sell goods to enough customers. eh. Um, But then there's, I mean, then there's the larger problem that he applies these modes of review that just, I mean, he's identifying the correct standard, but then he's applying them like in a way that makes no sense. I mean, he gives Bobby, if you read his, I think, 66 page opinion, he gives remarkably short shrift to the state's arguments about their justifications for these restrictions, right? He gives remarkably short shrift to the extent to which there is still a serious public health crisis in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania that might even justify these restrictions if they hadn't expired in July. So I I say all this just to say, I mean, this decision got a lot of positive um, endorsement from the anti-shutdown crowd. And I just want to say like, this is not the you know this is I mean this really is a flashback to like 1905. This is not the the modern judicial review that we've sort of endorsed and celebrated for so long. And if this okay, is I where we're found, heading, I just found I've been, the whole time I've been talking. I've been scrolling for this because I'm dying to see. Did what you find and you found the Lochner quote? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so the the subheading it's under part that has this header. This is the header. The Fourteenth Amendment guarantees a citizen's right to support himself by pursuing a chosen occupation. <laughs> Yeah, for people who don't, who've never studied common law, who've never read Slaughterhouse, who've never that, that, that's, that's, that's Justice Fields' dissent in Slaughterhouse. The, I mean, it, it sounds great. I actually have some sympathy with the idea that to some extent that, that the Constitution or that maybe the Ninth Amendment uh, should have some care for this. But but the law, that's of not the law. is really wait wait Bobby not to. Bobby, not to, not, not to worry. He cites Justice Alito's dissent in the South Bay case. Well, I want to I highlight, so I then scroll down and saying like, well, what are they what exactly going to cite for this? Um, and I'm going to quote now. Um, there's a citation to Meyer versus Nebraska, which quite correctly, he notes, does have an overlapping element of, of uh, Lochnerism too. So for the benefit of uh, the many listeners who did, in fact, have a law background of taking con law, you surely remember Meyer versus Nebraska which is is often, including in my class in the weeks ahead, taught as this element of Lochner era substantive due process that did not get gutted by the clear, clear demise of Lochner. 
Um, but, uh, but for but but for those who don't remember Meyer, Meyer's about a state law that banned um, instruction in any language other than English, and it was, was challenged German. It was it was oh, it was German specifically. Teach German. This is all post right. You know, post World War II stuff. Uh, but but, but the law did not just. But the law did not just ban public schools from teaching German. It banned everybody from teaching German. So German parents could not homeschool their children in their native language. In this case, there was a public school teacher, Herr Meyer, who was a German language teacher, and the court recognized both. These are separate. They both refer to totally consistent with Lochner, the idea that he has a liberty protected interest under the 14th Amendment in pursuing his trade, just as the court now <laughs> Judge Stickman says here. Um, that's just straightforward Lochner. That's that dies with Lochner too. There was a whole separate part, the part of Meyer that survived where it talks about the parents' constitutional rights to uh, have a, a, some unspecified degree of say over the education and upbringing of their child. That's right. the part of Meyer that's still good law, not the right. part that was the Lochner part. Those were two different parts. But the, the quote I want to then get to is this. The emphasis given to economic substantive due process reached its APAC in the Lochner era. This is quoting from Judge Stickman. There's a citation of Lochner, comma, and was considerably recalibrated and de-emphasized <laughs> by the New Deal Supreme Court in later jurisprudence. Considerably recalibrated. Steve, this podcast is considerably recalibrated. Show title. What a euphemism. That's yeah, I love, I love, I love, I love. So, so friends, Bobby, Bobby, um, Bobby, who actually has a real job, um, had not spent much of yesterday parsing this decision. And so this is, he's discovering this joy. This is, this is Bobby's organ. It's like those two kids, um, the famous, uh, the, the famous brothers who have these like organic reactions to music. Oh, right. Um, like the one everybody saw when they listened to, uh, Phil Collins. Yeah. In the air tonight. Um, Remember that song in the air tonight? Um, so, so this is Bobby's organic reaction to one of the most preposterous district court decisions I've seen in a long time. Um, and and what Bobby is is express is too polite, I think, to say directly um, is that the analysis in this opinion is utterly offensive to um, decades of settled understandings of constitutional law and relies to ignore those settled understandings on, you know, long discredited understanding of constitutional law and on a dissent that Justice Alito filed this summer in a COVID emergency case in the Supreme Court. Well, let because, me, you know, let me dis- ask this. Dissents, are, dissents are authoritative. Let me ask this, though. So, frankly, as I said earlier, I have a lot of sympathy for the perspective that uh, absent government interest, that there is some role here for the courts you can't have, obviously, purely arbitrary, unreasonable restrictions on people's li- right to pursue their livelihood. Yeah. Um, that part, I don't actually think the demise of Lochner gets rid of. The way, and that may sound inconsistent, folks, but it's not. The idea is that notwithstanding whatever uh, early 20th century language the Lochner court used to describe the type of judicial review that was triggered by its recognition of a liberty of you know pursuit of employment type right, um, in modern terms, what the court was doing was non-deferential review. It was a form of heightened review. We could quibble about exactly how non-deferential it was, but whatever it was, manifestly was not the modern idea of what rational basis review entails. Rational basis review is very straightforward. There's two elements. The government has to have a legitimate interest for what it's doing. It doesn't even have to be an important interest, just any legitimate interest. 
no one could possibly question that Pennsylvania's yeah, authorities right. have a legitimate interest here. Indeed, they have a compelling interest. Yeah. So then the only question is, what degree of fit must there be between the government action in question and the nature of the government's interest asserted? Right. How, whole, how well calibrated? Right. And the whole point of post-demise of Lochner uh, review under rational basis for things that affect people's employment as amply demonstrated by the iconic Williamson versus Lee optical case from the 1950s, which absolutely was about people's right to ply their trade, um, was that the level of scrutiny is so de minimis that it's extremely unlikely, even without a freaking pandemic, that someone could, that a legislature or government action could fail this. What's required is a logical, coherent connection. If it's over-inclusive, if it's under-inclusive, it doesn't matter. That's why it's rational basis review. I, oh I man, I am, I am having I am having so much fun with I am enjoying your I, I we should do this more. We should do um uh Steve gets Bobby to react organically to crazy shit that happens in the world. Oh man, all right, I'm I'm gonna calm down now. Um so let me just say this, no, this wait, opinion did, did, does oh. he apply rational basis review and say that this fails rational basis? So review? let me let me just be clear, right? Um he apply he only applies rational basis review to the business closure order. Um, right, that the the aggregate gathering and stay home orders get, I think, intermediate scrutiny. Um, but man, it's the, the, re- the First Amendment, which is a different kettle right. of fish, yeah, right. But but man, the 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 like, yes, I, I, I will be Bobby, I'll be the first to admit that the Pennsylvania orders at issue drew some pretty odd lines among businesses, right? And and in a world in which you know Pennsylvania was held to any kind of you know, heightened scrutiny for that, I think would have had real problems. But I mean, you know, rational, the kinds of things, I mean, w- Williamson is, is obviously the, the canonical case, but the kinds of stuff that the Supreme Court has said is, you know, reasonably related to a legitimate government interest. It's just, so, I mean, this decision's not going to last long because no matter who they draw on the Third Circuit, like, the third circuit's going to have no trouble vacating all of this nonsense on mootness grounds, like you know, without getting into what the standard of review is and substantive questions of the scope of scrutiny. They're just going to say this is all moot, and so we'll just vacate. But I just, I mean, the the the, the extent to which we hear so much chatter about how you know liberals are judicial activists and conservatives believe in restraint, and then we get decisions like this nonsense. I just, it just boggles the mind. I noticed footnote 27 is all about how there's a, quote, growing chorus of cases and commentators questioning whether the general deference afforded to economic regulations da, 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 should be reexamined and subjected to greater scrutiny. Uh, and so clearly there's, there's an element of that in mind. Um, it sounds to me like this boils down to, you know, do we mean what we say in Williamson versus Lee Optical, where just for the benefit of those who've never enjoyed reading it, uh, an optician had a very good reason to complain because Oklahoma law forbade the opticians from doing some glass fitting things that were there's there was really no good reason not to let them do it. Oklahoma was only letting the ophthalmologists and the optometrists do it because uh, they had a more powerful lobby because right? it, was, it was pretty obviously uh or, or, yeah exactly it was feather nesting, not public health as the legislature or the lawyers claimed. And the court said, look, this is a really bad fit with the asserted justification. That's rational basis review. 
And sometimes, sometimes legislatures pass silly laws. Yeah. So when you when you transpose that principle to the context of pandemic decision making, look to be clear, as you say, I have no trouble imagining that whatever lines Pennsylvania drew may be extremely hard right. to defend. But the whole point of rational basis review is not to truly subject the the uh, state governments to having to defend in the context where there is no heightened review interest. And it well, seems like what's going on here is is in fact a, a desire to have unspoken rational basis with bite or intermediate scrutiny. Well, but I mean, and it would be one thing if there actually were warrant for doing that in the Supreme Court. But I mean, the Supreme Court got one of these cases in May. And by a 5-4 vote, the court refused to um, uh, step in um, and enjoin California's COVID order. And the Chief Justice Bobby wrote a very unusual concurring opinion. And this is what he says at the end. And I just want to quote it because I think this is actually really powerful about what's going on here, right? The precise question of when restrictions on particular social activities should be lifted during the pandemic is a dynamic and fact-intensive matter subject to reasonable disagreement, Uh, dot, 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 Um, where the the Constitution's broad limits are not exceeded. They should not be subject to second-guessing by an unelected federal judiciary, which lacks the background, competence, and expertise to assess public health and is not accountable to the people. That's especially true, whereas here a party seeks emergency relief in an interlocutory posture while local officials are actively shaping their response to changing facts on the ground. The notion that it's indisputably clear that the government's limitations are unconstitutional, he says, seems quite improbable. <laughs> and, Excellent you know, who, and sorry is, from the chief. This is just, you know, the chief justice of the United States who also happens to be the median vote on the Supreme Court right now. Why would we listen to him? You know, it's funny because I, I made that passing reference to rational basis with Biden a moment ago. And I noticed in continuous scan here, there's a there's a prominent citation to City of Cleburne, which is famously and rational basis with bite. So so let me say one last thing, because we've already given this opinion more time than it deserves. What what really scares me about this opinion is it is the judicialization of the sort of right wing media, you know, sort of the, the 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 pandemic is overstated. Like it's over, right? Like it's this is this is basically the, you know, we're through the worst of it in, you know, in the federal supplement. <laughs> um and, you know, I mean, you don't have to look far, Bobby, there, to find... Are there elements in this opinion where he disparages the, the current state of the threat? Um, there are... No, but he repeatedly refuses to acknowledge Pennsylvania's arguments that the threat is, if anything, you know, as serious now as it was then. Like, I mean, he he really does not, I think, give proper credence to the state's asserted justifications couched in terms of the ongoing significance of the pandemic. And, you know, I just... If we're going to be against judicial activism, we should be against it in all stripes. That's all. That's all I'm going to say. Well, so the last um, thing I'll say about this is, yeah, as I've emphasized repeatedly, I'm yes. only just now glancing at this. I clearly have <laughs> some of the legal claims, but I'm I'm going to go back and read this carefully and see if maybe maybe who knows maybe I'll be persuaded that there is a degree of irrationality here that brings it into the danger zone, even under the Williamson versus Lee optical standard. Good I, luck. I'm not going to be persuaded that Lochner hasn't been over. <laughs> All right. Um, before we do TikTok, I want to throw one more legal development out there, which is not Trumpy. This is a a new uh, a new military cert petition that I just think is a fascinating case. So, um, really quickly, because I also this is also Steve testing Bobby with an organic reaction. Okay. Oh my God. All right. All right. So, Bobby, um, there is um, there there are a lot of service members, right, who have something called a break in service, right, where they leave the service and then reenlist. Um, and there are financial reasons why some do it. There are career reasons. You know, there are just, I mean, there are any number of reasons why this happens. Um, 
a long time ago, right? Congress. The the question is, what happens if you commit a, uh, an offense during your first tour, and then your service breaks, and then you are prosecuted? Can you be prosecuted for it during your second tour? Right? Can can a can the military exercise jurisdiction across a service break? Is basically okay. the broad question. Interesting. Um, until until like not not the, until the nineteen nineties, basically, Congress had said yes if and only if. The military is the only uh, uh, body that can prosecute the offense. Basically, a rule of a rule of um, exigency, right? That a rule of necessity, where the military could could court martial a pre-service break offense in your second tour, right? Um, if and only if no one else could try it, right? That was the statutory rule Congress adopts in 1950, and the way the rule is written is. Um, you can be uh, 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 an individual who's subject to the UCMJ can be court-martialed for an offense committed during a prior tour of service um, if, quote, the offense is one for which he cannot be tried in the courts of any state. Okay. Right? Okay. So maybe it happens um, on a base overseas and something like that. Exactly so. Exactly. Well, and indeed, there was a Supreme Court case called U.S. Exeral Hirschberg versus Cook. That was the exact case Congress was responding to when it wrote the statute. All right. Now let me tell you about Timothy Hennis. Um, so Timothy Hennis um, was a soldier in the army in 1989 when he was acquitted, and this is an important fact, acquitted by a North Carolina state court of capital murder, right? So he's tried by a jury and he's acquitted for the for, for, for a capital murder right. offense. Um, following a break in his service, he rejoins the army and serves apparently honorably until 2004 when he retires. In 2010, Bobby, six years after he retired, from the army, he is court-martialed for the original capital offense that he was acquitted of in North Carolina. And to satisfy the jurisdictional statute, the government argues that he is subject to military jurisdiction because he cannot be tried in the because his offenses, the capital murder charges, um, are ones for which he cannot be tried in the courts of any state. Why not? Because the only court that could try him is North Carolina. But North Carolina can't try him because double jeopardy. So that just seems like a simple statutory interpretation uh, question where first just taking it on its face, yeah. absolutely a state court can try him. Yes, it I, did. As, as proven, <laughs> not only do I think it can be done, I've seen it done. So that doesn't even seem like a hard question. And then that's separate from the idea that it's, very hard to believe that what Congress actually intended with such a statement was to encompass it. They obviously meant situations where there was no jurisdiction to prosecute in the first place. As, as opposed to, um, as, you know, you've already been acquitted. Right. As, as opposed to the double jeopardy clause would bar your retrial. Yeah, no, like who, who can you, I mean, one way to test this is to say, is it realistic to imagine that any member of Congress would say, actually say out loud, Part of what we want to make possible here is to go after someone who was, in fact, prosecuted and gets away with it by not being. So, so Bobby, you, you say it's obvious, to which I say the three judges on the Army Court of Criminal Appeals and five judges on CAF who heard this case all say all, all came out the other way. <laughs> like, like I said, I think it's obvious. So this, uh, so there's a cert petition now pending in Hennis um, that raises three questions: whether, in fact, the offenses for which he was tried and acquitted in state court were offenses for which he could not be tried in state court. I, 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 I love that question. I, I'm co-counsel yeah, on this petition. That's well. I don't know if those your words or colleagues, but that 
pretty much captures it. I, I want to read it because I, I actually think like I I just I, I flubbed it a bit in my um question one quote whether the offenses for which petitioner was tried and acquitted in state court <laughs> constituted offenses for which he cannot be tried in the courts of any state. <laughs> I feel like a law clerk who reads question one of this petition is going to be like, wait, what? <laughs> Yeah, well, um, it, it does. It does beg the question: like, what is the counter argument? Is it literally just trying to be hyper formalistic about the language, saying strictly speaking, he can't now be tried, even though the word I mean, "now" cannot, is not cannot, cannot is present tense. That's literally what Calf said. Calf said "cannot" is present tense. Oh, give me a break. This is gives not, lawyers a bad name. But it's also, I mean, this is a capital case. Like this, the military tried to execute this guy. So then the second question presented is whether insofar as the statute actually does authorize that kind of jurisdiction, whether it's unconstitutional by treating, by weaponizing double jeopardy. Um, but third, and this is actually a separate and and related but but not similar claim. Um, so Hennis is the first uh, service member who has been convicted in a capital court martial um, for non-military offenses, right? For civilian offenses. Um, and so it also raises whether the constitution bars the military from capital courts martial for non-military offenses. The Supreme Court in Solorio in 1987 said service members can be tried for any offense. But in 1996, four justices said we haven't, you know, we didn't hold there that that includes capital offenses. Um, so there's also that. Wow. Well, uh, so I like your chances on the statutory argument. I don't have Me any too. thoughts on the other. Yeah, yeah. All right. So you want to talk a bit about TikTok before we talk about um, Mandalorian? Yeah. So just I'll be real quick on this. But as, as some folks know, I've been closely following the TikTok story, both in its IEPA and its CFIUS dimensions. So I just want to close the loop by noting that Oracle and TikTok have a deal. But it's very interesting. It's not the deal Microsoft was trying to get. It is not the acquisition of TikTok. Tick, ByteDance will still control TikTok. The algorithm that drives TikTok's for you recommendations engine, um, which would be the relevant part of the deal if your concern is censorship, let alone pushing disinformation. Censorship looms much larger than the latter because you have some evidence of the former, you don't really have evidence of the latter. Um, what's happening instead, so what is Oracle getting? They're becoming an investor and they're going to have a trusted Technology partnership is the phrase that's being bandied about, to, which is a sort of a euphemism, if you will, for their role managing the U.S. person data. That supposedly the idea would be that Oracle is entirely in charge of whatever user data could possibly be gathered by the app. Now, since Oracle won't be in control of the source code, just the servers, there's still a lingering question about whether the source code could be a vehicle for surreptitiously accessing U.S. person information unbeknownst to Oracle, but at least as far as the uh, more formal route of concern, that is to say the route in which Chinese authorities work through Chinese law to compel a Chinese company to quietly, non-publicly cooperate, um, that shouldn't be possible if Oracle's role is as it appears to be. Um, and so now we're going to find out, does the administration really care overall? Did, did they care up until the point that a relatively friendly relationship was implicated? Because Oracle famously, uh, certain key executives have a, a strong ties to the White House. We'll see. Supposedly, there was a, uh, a meeting with uh, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin, Secretary of Commerce Ross, and others to ponder whether from a CFIUS perspective, this is good enough, and whether they'll encourage the president to let it go. They got to decide by Monday, Steve, because on Monday, that's when the IEPA AIPA, the AIPA sanctions kick in. Um, so that's going to 
be a bit of a forcing function. The CFIUS divestiture order doesn't kick in until November, so they have plenty of time on that dimension. Meanwhile, there's no one who seems to think that there's going to be some deal later this week surprisingly announcing that WeChat, that Tencent is selling off WeChat's U.S. operations. So as of Monday, WeChat is going to be subject to sanctions of uncertain scope and dimension because we don't know exactly what transactions are going to be forbidden. Secretary of Commerce is supposed to promulgate clarifying directives to explain what, what's in and what's out. If you run a retail establishment like a KFC or a Pizza Hut, I'm assuming they have Chinese presences. Uh, you have an interesting question. Can you still take cash at the point of sale via WeChat payment? Uh, not obvious that you can. And it'll be really interesting to see. And a, an interesting test of whether the administration is actually on its on its task, uh, whether they issue some regulations on Monday to explain just what's in and what's out for uh for WeChat. Let me note too that the executive order on WeChat, the IEPA executive order imposing sanctions on WeChat includes a clause in it that references Tencent, the parent company, even though there've been all these off the record or sorry, uh, anonymously sourced statements from administration officials saying that, no, no, this is just about WeChat. It's not about Tencent's other American holdings, like its investments in Tesla or various video game companies. Um, they say it's not covered, but unless an Intel the Secretary of Commerce issues clarifying regulations proving that. The language is what the language is. So watch this space. Um, I will. Um, I, I really do like the whole drop drop things on Bobby and see how he reacts frame for this episode. Yeah, no you more You got to do this to me sometime. Well, um, I'm, I'm very worried that I'm going to read this opinion and find myself sympathetic with the claim that it was actually irrational or, or more to the point that I, I, I suspect the following. I suspect I'll find that for all that talk about Lochner, which I got so wound up about yeah. that in the end, what he does is to actually apply rational basis review. But as you say, maybe misapply it. And then again, what if I'm persuaded? Oh my God, I'll have to eat all these criticisms next week. No, cause it, no, cause it's all still moot. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, I will walk it back. If I find that I'm actually persuaded, he says, I will eat crow. All right. Well, I am not persuaded, but so I, I'm going to continue to disagree with you either way um, or not either way. <laughs> um, so um, I, for, for, for our especially attentive listeners, um, and you know who you are, you might recall that on our last episode, we had promised um, to spend time on this episode talking about the, fir- the Fourth Circuit's decision in the Macellus Rydak case. And we have failed to live up to our promise. So um we are going to we, – we really do want to cover that, and we intend to next week. Um, we also want to note as that three – you know, two things we're going to talk about in a lot more detail next week. There have been a couple of declassified Bobby FISA court opinions that suggest further mischief um, oh, in man, the FISA process. We didn't even get to that. You're right. We've got to – And there's the and there's the Ninth Circuit's very long-awaited opinion in the Moallen case – um, which came pretty close to holding that there's a Fourth Amendment right to not have the government collect your metadata, but didn't quite go there. So we're going to have a FISA special section, I think, next week. Um, but for now, because it's late and I'm tired, um, we're going to talk frivolity. And you proposed for frivolity not week one of the NFL season, so I didn't have to talk about how terrible the Giants are but rather the uh, trailer that came out, I think, today, right, for season two of The Mandalorian. All right. 
I love this trailer. It was. So I love cool. the trailer. Everyone is gonna come. Everyone who's seen it is gonna comment on the insanely cute and funny bit that they get Baby Yoda to do when it seems like some stuff's about to go down with the Mandalorian. And I just, for the for the benefit of those who haven't seen it yet, I'm not gonna say what he does, but it's hilarious. Did you laugh out loud when you? When you I saw did. That? And Maddie's especially into the child right now. We've gotten her three of these little the child figurines, and she like takes them everywhere. So awesome. you know, this is. Um, I, so what 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 struck me about the trailer, Bobby? As you recall, my biggest complaint about season one of The Mandalorian was just how like trod, you know, trudgy and and slow and laborious it was. And it seems like season two won't be totally rid of that, but at least the elements of the story are coming into sharper focus. I mean, we, you know, the trailer I think is quite. Um, uh, that what there's a quote right the armorer tells the mandalorian the songs of eons past tell of battles between mandalore the great and an order of sorcerers called the jedi yeah that was pretty tantalizing right um and apparently like the you know the whole point is uh, oh you expect me to search the galaxy and return this creature to a race of enemy sorcerers he replies this is the way she says so apparently he's now looking for baby yoda's people who are Jedi, which, I mean, we were pretty sure they were, we knew they were Jedi. Um, but that's interesting because does that mean that there are uh, yet more Jedi out there? I was going to say, like, so it presents an interesting, almost a continuity question with the yes. films, right? I mean, because yes. it certainly implies that, and, and the trailer does depict one person who's, you're, I think you're very clearly supposed to assume, and, may, and maybe the answer is going to be like, no, in fact, there, there really aren't because of the whole demise of the Skywalker campaign and the rise of Kylo Ren, blah, blah, blah. Um, but there's a person depicted as clearly some observing Jedi who then disappears. So it's going to be very interesting to see what they do there. I think they take the continuity seriously. So I trust they're going to have some maybe more or less satisfying uh, answer to this. But I agree with you that it looks like they're claiming that in contrast to season one, which uh, much of the middle part of it was in the nature of like a classic 1970s, like like the way Battlestar Galactica originally used to be, where it's like, all right, this week, not really going to move the needle too much on the old racing for Earth, trying to get away from the Cylons. I think we're going to land on a planet that has like, uh, mm-hmm. I don't know, like a, an Old West theme or maybe a medieval Viking theme. And Starbuck and Apollo are going to have a little adventure and then kind of get back on the ship and continue. That was... Uh, you know, that's that's a lighthearted way to do it. There was too much of that in season one. Season two is being framed here as if it's going to be more of a narrative arc. And and I sure hope so. That would be nice. That would, that would alleviate some of my objections. So I think, what, October 25th? Was that the date? It was like late October. All right. Um, so, you know, um, man, Mandalorian, The Crown, like we're going to have some good distractions from election nonsense. Oh, by the way, the Emmys, I believe, are on uh, Sunday night coming up. So I think it's good for those of us who love the uh, the Watchmen series. Um, I, I keep laughing about the fact that you and I thought it got it got snubbed last year. It's like, no, no, it just wasn't up there. <laughs> I think they're gonna, they are going to clean, clean up house. Yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, I you know, just I mean – the, I mean, the, the, I, I don't even know how you could justify, you know, giving awards to like anybody else in categories for which Watchmen is available. But what do I know? I mean, they, they should just give the Regina King the, 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 the Emmy now. Uh, if she, I'm gonna lose my mind if she doesn't get it. She was so good. Yes. So good. Um, all right. Well, on that, um, that actually was not our, our most downlifting note. Uh, um, yeah, apparently, a- apparently, Trump in his town hall tonight, when asked by Stephanopoulos, you know. 
were did didn't you try to downplay the the vi- no I upplayed it. Uh, he also he also apparently is now embracing the herd mentality approach to COVID, by which I assume he means herd immunity, which of course will just mean three million people die. You know, basically what he's been doing without saying it. Um, yeah, no, that's bonkers. So I think I an idea that I hope I we see pursued. If there's a change in administration soon or much later down the road, sooner or later there needs to be a 9/11 commission report style. Oh, absolutely. Bipartisan, sophisticated, serious, frontier attention level. Get Philip Zelikow to write it so it's awesome and readable and brilliant and unpack in a serious way all the freaking things we've been failing to do and and try to find some ways, maybe at least on the margins, to set things up to where we're lashed to the mass, to where that won't but, I mean, Bob, how, how's that going to work when 40% of this country, you know, thinks Joe Biden hasn't done enough to contain the spread of the coronavirus? Uh, <laughs> I won't even ask like, what kind of poll might have given rise to that. I mean, this is the well, new I GOP talking point. I think, that, I think that this is the, this is certainly of a piece with the, the, type of circumstances that led to that serious effort and the great good that it did both in trying to establish it has the elements of a truth and reconciliation process yeah, yeah. No, no, the, the 911 commission report is a is a it's not just an amazing read it's a powerful service to the country and and I'm I'm with you if the circumstances can be created where we can where we can duplicate that I'm all for it um all right he's at Bobby Chen I'm at Steve underscore Bladek. we have to stop going 16 days between episodes because too much stuff is happening so I think we will we will try to record again next week. Absolutely. My last week, my last week as a 40 year old. And and let, oh, is that right? Wait, I yeah. did not know this. Oh, yeah, next Saturday. Tell everybody, what's your birthday? September 26th. Happy birthday. All right. We will, uh, we will be celebrating soon, but hopefully we'll have an episode before then. I will say this too, the election coming up, the madness, uh, the, the, the kind of drawing towards the season, the maybe the series finale, maybe the season finale for this show. I can imagine us having multi-episodes a week depending on what happens either before or god forbid after the election so let's Wait, serious ser- serious finale what is that the serious finale would be if this show gets renewed i don't mean our show i mean oh you mean the, the serious finale of trumplandia oh okay that's fine i was like i was like where are we going uh, nowhere as far as i know except probably back in the studio more often seriously all right all right he's at bobby chesney i'm at steve underscore vladek we are at nsl podcast um stay safe protect yourself from the herd people the herd's coming Oh, Lord. Adios. That's when you say adios. <laughs>